Hey there, everybody, and welcome to a slightly more morbid Tough Like a Girl podcast. It's October, it seemed fitting. I'm Nathaniel. I'm Liz. And unfortunately, we were not able to wrangle the guest we wanted to have on this, so it is going to be just the two of us. Um, and also, before we get started, we're going to... We're going to basically consider this podcast to be rated PG-13 because the book that we're talking about deals with some heavier topics. And as a result, the conversation about the book is going to deal with some heavier topics. And I know some of our regular listeners have younger kids, so don't know if they actually listen to the podcast with their kids or not. But, you know, just just in case, be aware. So what we are covering is Death, the High Cost of Living. So this is written by Neil Gaiman. It has has illustrations by Chris, 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 not Critch, Chris Bocciallo, Mark Buckingham, Dave McKean, who also did the covers, of course. It's a comic by Neil Gaiman. It's always Dave McKean. Uh, Colors were by Steve Olaf, lettered by Todd Klein, and uh, the edition that I have also has an introduction by Tori Amos. Yes, mine also has that as well, just so you know. Fancy. Fancy, yes. Tori Amos, not a name I have heard in many years. So, So for folks who don't know, this is a bit of a spinoff from Neil Gaiman's much-revered Sandman Um, run of comics. The character of Death was one of the breakout characters from that series, and she was granted, I think, I believe, two miniseries. This is the more highly regarded of the two, and was also the first one, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so, we have a story... Boy. This is a hard thing to summarize because there is simultaneously a lot going on, but then not a lot happening. Mm -hmm. So... We have a number of characters at play. We have a very old, um, crazy homeless woman, and I, I'm, I use that term in the most literal, literal possible sense. Her, she's called Mad Hetty. She is nuts. So I'm not just like tossing that off casually. You know who she reminded me of is if Ophelia from Hamlet had lived. Um, she would have become Mad Hetty. Yeah, she would have. Because at one point she's singing about daisies, and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's Ophelia if she had made it to old age, essentially. Really old age, because Mad Hetty claims to be 250 years old. Yes. So she's a part of this. We have a teenager, a, six, a very morbid 16-year-old named Sexton, who is suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a few characters surrounding him. Then we have Death, also known as Dee Dee, referred to here, mm-hmm. who is exactly that. She is the embodiment of Death. And, and perky goth. Yes, she, form. she is the perkiest goth you will ever encounter. Mm-hmm. So as far as the plot goes, oh boy. There's there's a like I said, the it's it's surprisingly low key for how much is going on. So every hundred years Death inhabits the body of a human for one day. And the reason that she does this is that is so that she appreciates what it is that she does. She understands the value of life because her job is to end it. Mm-hmm. So, and there are a handful of beings who know about this. Mad Hetty is one. So she's she finds death and basically says, hey, I hid my heart somewhere. I want you to find it. Mm-hmm. 
And so there's that at play. There is uh, a later character called the Aramite. Yes. Who um, I couldn't think of his name for a minute. Who is another very indeterminately old um, character who it, who wants to take her power, power, death's power from her because he believes her to be vulnerable during the time she is on Earth because she is in fact mortal mm -hmm. um, and has none of her normal powers or skills. And it's basically Sexton riding shotgun with death through her one day of being alive mm -hmm. for this go around with all this other stuff kind of going on and at play. Um, and it's... It, even as all that stuff goes on, there's a lot of vignettes. There's a lot of stopping and, you know, grabbing a hot dog, going to a rock show, and... Meeting a lot of random people, some of whom I really enjoy, like Mrs. Robbins. There's, yeah. I who kind of looks after Dee Dee. So, since, since I don't know it's worth going into the plot in any more detail than that, what did you think? I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It's... It's kind of a nice meandering journey, which I don't always like, but in this case I do. Um, I think Sexton's realization and story arc are really good. He goes from being like, everything's boring, I hate it, I'm going to end it, to being like, no, there's a lot of value to life, I'm going to stick around. Like, maybe she really was death, and yeah. I want to wait a while to see her again, you know? It's worth pointing out with Sexton, while he is absolutely suicidal, and at the time we meet him, he's composing his suicide note, he's not necessarily depressively suicidal. He's He just thinks that what he's experiencing now is never going to get any better than this, and this kind of sucks, so what's the point? Yeah, he's a mopey teen. Yes. Yeah. Or Mopey, <laughs> angsty teen, That's but not... But not, I almost don't think, yes, he was composing his note, but I didn't really see a plan other than wandering off to the like. Well, I mean, we dump. We, we find know? out almost immediately how strong his conviction is because as soon as he's pinned under the fridge, he's calling out for help. Yeah. So I, I think, in a without anyone like confronting him directly, the story kind of pushes on his convictions right away and goes like, oh, well, look at that crumble. <laughs> yep, pretty much. So, I mean, like, he's a, he's a bummed out, confused teenager. And I think he's a pretty good representation of that, all things considered. Yes, that is, that is a thing that there are plenty of teens that are that way. So, makes sense. Um, you mentioned the meandering. I think part of the reason it works here is because it makes sense for what death is going to do on one day living. She's going to wander around. She's going to meet a lot of people. She's going to experience a lot of different things because she wants to take in as much as she can. So because our central character, or at least our focus character, because you could argue Sexton might be the protagonist, mm -hmm. but our focus character, because she doesn't have a purpose or a quest or, you know, Hattie sends her off to do something, but she's just kind of doing it. Because her whole thing is just going through and having experiences, it kind of allows the narrative to get away with that, I think, more than might be the case otherwise. Mm -hmm. There's some nice little connections, too. Like, the person they meet at the club, um, who's about to have a baby, used to work with Sexton's mom, and... Um, well, and her partner is the one who's going to be singing. Yes, her partner's Foxglove, yeah, is going to be singing. And then there's a little bit with, like, an agent that Sexton talks to. And 
Um, so there's connections back to the main characters, and Hetty ends up, um, Hetty and Mrs. Robbins end up saving Sexton and Death later on, or Dee Dee later on. So um, they kind of tie, even though there's a lot of different characters, um, they tied them back together. So yeah, and I, I, I mean, I think at this point it's just worth sort of drilling into the characters. Um, specifically, because like I said, like you or in like you said, the the plot just kind of meanders along until the day's over and mm-hmm. and death has her day and then she's gone. So like, what what did you think of Mad Hetty? At first, I was like, whoa, she's intense because she's threatening um, Sexton with a broken bottle and like she was a little bit much but I liked her by the end. I think the thing with her is she gets a she gets a laser focus on what it is she wants and she doesn't put a lot of the thought into the means she uses to get it. No. <laughs> Which results in her being like turning on a dime. Mhm. Dangerous. Yes. Because she can just decide, "Oh, well the best way for me to get what, what I want is to break this person's leg or to or to threaten to cut off this teenager's nose with a bottle and she seems to lack the the thinking about stopping to think whether or not there's a better way it's like the first thing that comes to her mind that's just what she's gonna do mm-hmm. i like that her heart was a little golden locket at the end and then she's like oh i better hide it again I, as, as soon as she got it back and like the implication we get is that this thing has been she has been missing this thing for over a hundred years because she said she missed deaths last time uh-huh. on earth so this heart has been missing for somewhere between 200 a century, 250 least. and 100 years mm-hmm and she gets her hands on it and immediately goes, I better hide this away where nobody's ever going to find it. again, like, we're back at square one. Which, yeah. again, I think, you know, speaks to, she just, that was her first, she gets her hands on it again. It's like, ooh, nobody else should have this. I should hide it again. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just kind of heady in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. I did like Mrs. Robinson, or Miss Robbins, I'm sorry. That was, um, she was very uh, mother henish. Yes, she was. Walked, she was nice. Looked after Dee Dee knew her background and everything. What'd you think of Sexton's mom? Um, we only really see her at the beginning. She's a little bit nutty. We um, do. I think we got, we got a look at her, and she was she's the kind of flighty that I that it makes sense that she ended up with a very detached kid. Yeah, but I mean, she's also probably was pretty unhappy when her husband left for another another woman who was much younger and had another kid and stuff so she's probably she's probably the kind of flighty that is keeping herself busy for a reason i'm sure there's a reason for it but i'm just saying it 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 sort of tracks that Mm -hmm. somebody like sexton in the place where he is at 16 would have that kind of person for a mother yeah um, and yeah, like you said, there's a lot of little one-off characters. We've got the hot dog vendor, and we've got the taxi driver, mm-hmm. and just sort of all. These... I love how everyone just gives her everything for free, and he's yeah, like, "Wait, to death. what is going on?" He doesn't understand. Well, when we get the bagel guy too. Yeah, but that's that was sort of one of her things from her introduction right in Sandman, which is that 
the 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 way her entire character works is this, this is somebody that when you die you you see her and you go oh okay like the her whole entire ambiance is about putting people at ease yeah she is i would lo- i would like to hang out with dd honestly like it's like oh you're like and you know i know perky goths in real life and i like some of them but i'm like she's just the coolest perkiest goth ever <laughs> and she she's more she's i mean not that they're not genuine but she's just she ups the perky in it she, without losing any of the goth so she does and i mean part of the reason i mentioned like the little like even one page sort of characters we run into is that you get a real sense that she relishes those encounters mm-hmm. brief as they are and they don't come back and they don't factor into the bigger story but mm-hmm. those kinds of encounters are why she does this Mm-hmm. So you you get that sense of relish that she has in just these tiny moments. Mm-hmm. Well, they're so few and far between for her. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sorry to see Theo go. Theo, yeah. So Theo is basically a punk kid who is... Um, Sexton knows from school, again, that little connection. Yeah, and he's working for the, for the Aramite, Aramite yeah. because... He just kind of is. He wants, but he thinks there's financial gain in it for him, essentially. But there isn't really because the Aramite is all about knowledge and not necessarily financial power, but power that yeah. comes through knowledge. And Yeah. And as soon as Theo tries to, you know, change the deal, the Aramite kills him. Uh-huh. Well, he... He pun- he punches him in the nose and his head smacks against the back of a wall and he dies a little while later. And I actually appreciate how much so how much time and acknowledgement there was of the passage of time between when he was injured and when he died. Mm-hmm. There- There's the whole cigarette burning down, which is kind of a cool effect. There's some really nice wordless panels in here. There are. And I, and I do find it interesting that... It- I mean, unless you count Dee Dee, which is a weird thing, you know, with sort of death going back to her own realm at the end. Mm-hmm. They're really... Theo's is the only death in the book. Yeah, and which so, I was not expecting. So I was like, uh, I was expecting a much higher body count. And that didn't happen, which I kind of liked. Yeah, but it, it, it gives it... It makes it appropriate that there's that much weight given to what is unquestionably a henchman side character. But it's the only death that occurs... Mm-hmm over the course of the book so yeah it kind of should have a bit of weight to it yep um trying to think if there was well okay so (laughs) do you want to talk about the um the little added psa segment yes at the end yes so there's a black and white psa segment at the end where Didi teaches the teens who are presumably reading this book teens and young adults and whatnot um, about safe sex. And it's really, I think it's actually really well done. It's not too preachy or judgy. Um, It's not like, oh, you must love the person you're having sex with. It is very much like, well, you should probably at least know them. (laughs) And you probably shouldn't be under the influence of drugs and alcohol. And you know what, as an adult, I'd say that pans out. That's some good advice. <laughs> that's, like, so, that's solid advice at any age. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, you know what? She's, and you know, she talks about 
different STDs and goes in a little into AIDS and HIV at length. And and then uh, we have the banana demonstration. Banana demonstration with John Constantine. Yes. Nathaniel has informed me about. Yeah, we have um, John Constantine cameoing to provide her with the banana. Mm-hmm. And he's rather embarrassed by the situation, which is interesting because the list of things that embarrass John Constantine is short. I feel like a perky goth could do it, though. Yes, I, th- I, I think I think she probably could embarrass him. Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I kind of appreciated it and liked it. I was not expecting it. It was a little strange, but I was like, aw. I don't quite know why it's in there, but it is. Well, I mean, part of it just has to do with um, with the timing. I mean, this, this um, collection... Mm-hmm. was pulled together in 94 the original issue and that that PSA was part of this collection it was done yes. for the graphic novel and the issues were in 1993 so 1994 was still kind of a big people don't really understand the level of risk yeah phase in a lot true. of ways because I mean the reason it, it I mean thinking back to my own sort of um, sex education and whatnot around that time mm-hmm. there you know when birth control had come around people thought oh well the biggest concern is over like we have the ability to stop pregnancy from happening woo now it's a party and then we realized no there's a lot of other stuff we need to be worried about and there was a lot of there was a lot of both emphasis and I think to some degree confusion and misinformation going around around that time. So I think I think for when the thing was published, it makes actually a surprising amount of sense that it's there. Yeah. I just, you know, it's 2018 and I wasn't yes. quite expecting it. But I, I, I haven't quite had a lot of PSAs in my comic books. So... Um, and, yeah. and, I mean, and it is it is a PSA proper. It is completely. Se- it's not integrated into the story. We yeah. don't stop the story to like. No, it's a completely separate piece with a completely yeah, different at artist yeah. at the end in black and white. Like it is very distinctly a separate entity. Yeah. And yet she still maintains all of her perky gothness through mm-hmm. <laughs> explaining all of it. Yep. Um, I really like the philosophy of the book, too. I mean, there's a lot going on. It's a pretty deep book. Um, some of their conversations between her and Sexton. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, philosophy about life and death and the journey they're on and I mean, what, what we're living for. So, What's kind of funny is that for at least, you know, until we get to the tail end, I think in many ways... Um, death and Sexton have a similar view of life. They've just come to the opposite conclusions, which is, you know, Sexton looks at life and goes, it's nothing but this, these mundane little tiny things. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is not worth anything. Whereas death, Dee Dee goes, life is a bunch of these tiny little mundane things. And it's amazing. Yeah. So, I just, and I love her outlook on it. And yeah. it's just, you know, it's kind of crushing in the end where she dies. You understand she has to, but it's like, oh, Dee Dee. You <laughs> kind of fall in love with her, so. You do. And and I do think it, it's interesting having people who both see the world very much in the same way in terms of the content of what the world is, but just have completely opposing perspectives on what that means to them at least initially and she kind of opens sexton's eyes up to the value of the stuff he'd been very dismissive of 
Yeah. That's very true. Um, yeah, so it was it was good. I really enjoyed it. Um, it was a nice... We've done a lot of kids stuff recently, so it's <laughs> nice to have something a little darker, a little heavier. Um, I appreciated that, so... Yeah. I, I, I think we were due for something, because, like, lately, even the... Because, I mean, a lot of the stuff you bring to the table is stuff deliberately aimed at preschoolers. But even, like, the stuff that I was bringing... Preschoolers? I'm sorry, not preschoolers. <laughs> um, grade schoolers. Grade schoolers, yes. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I can I know words. I have the best words. So, I... Um, but even the stuff that I was bringing to a table for a while there was aimed at the younger crowd because we did... Um, we did Wasp and we did Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur and so mm -hmm. even even the stuff that I was wearing we skewed younger for uh, for quite a stretch there actually yeah we have I think we only kind of broke it up with um, with Trekker that's true which we had mixed feelings on so maybe that didn't that yeah. didn't help alleviate it as much as as much as this ended up doing how did you feel about this one i like it i like it a lot and it's funny i think the one thing that i wouldn't even have complained about but it would have been like it's not as strong is the whole aramite thing but the thing was actually talking it out with you mm -hmm. about theo's death and having that have weight makes me realize there is more value in that subplot than i had given it credit for mm -hmm. it's still probably my least favorite element of the story mm -hmm. overall just because it's it's sort of an imposition of danger mm -hmm. on the situation that i'm not entirely sure it needed other than it's a comic and you need some kind of hook to get people to buy the next issue yeah so i think he i think his inclusion is the most superfluous but for what it is i think it's still well integrated and there's still value in that subplot and the things that come out of it yeah but and that, i like the fact that he gets what he wants he gets the onk and still you know it doesn't it doesn't have the power he thinks it is she is the one that imbibes it with power and she ends up buying another one and you know yeah she's like okay <laughs> Which is kind of how Dee Dee the human rolls. Yeah. So, so it yeah this this is one where I have no serious substantive you know complaints or, or really nitpicks about it is it's for as much as is going on here and as much philosophy and stuff is going on here certainly compared to Sandman it's light oh, by yeah. comparison. Yeah, I did enjoy this more. I've read one like the first volume of Sandman and I like it. But it is really heavy and almost too deep. And I like this sort of like, we're going to hang out and eat some hot dogs and bagels and talk. And there will be some philosophy woven in. And we'll meet some cool people. And Oh, that was a nice day. <laughs> and, and yeah. Yeah, yeah Sam, I, I love Sandman to death, but it is dense. Mm -hmm. There, It is It is not a, uh, it is not a, a light read. <laughs> so, yeah, I think this, this goes down as a... As a recommendation from both Definitely. of us. Definitely, yes. So, yeah, folks, that's Death, High Cost of Living. Oh, side note. They've been trying to make a movie of this forever. Oh, really? This particular volume? Yes, oh. and Neil Gaiman was supposed to direct it. Oh, wow. And he, has, he has directed. He's only directed short films, last, oh, I, okay. last I checked. But I know, like, like, ten years ago, I was reading about how they were working on this and then 
like a few years after that like it had stalled but they were working on it and now it's just kind of sitting around i suspect like i don't know how much of the rights of sandman neil gaiman is still in control of i figure it has to be a decent amount Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, because he's published through Vertigo and which is owned by DC, mm-hmm. and DC does not have a lot of shame when it comes to cranking out stuff on things that they have complete control over, which is mm-hmm. why we got friggin' Watchmen prequels. But they haven't done anything Sandman related that wasn't written by Gaiman. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, like tiny weird exceptions like there was a weird chibi death manga thing like in the early 2000s that he didn't write but he signed off on but so my suspicion is the reason that the movie isn't keeps getting stalled is i think i suspect gaiman insists on directing it but then the debate becomes well if you're going to direct it we're going to want a real low budget because you're not you know you haven't directed a feature before, and then mm-hmm. I suspect it just keeps stalling in the early development for reasons like that. Oh, a struggle okay. between how much control he wants to retain and how much Warner Brothers, which all DC stuff is published through because they own it, mm-hmm. how much they're how much control they're willing to give him. Yeah. So that makes sense. But um, but yeah, so that's death, and we're gonna take a quick promotional break, and then we'll be back with a bit of listener feedback. Come back. Back through the Fire and Water Network. Come back with the Supermates. I said, come back. Back to the House of Frankenstein. The Supermates present four blood-curdling films with an all-star cast. Lon Chaney Jr. I know you'll think I'm crazy, but... In a half an hour, the moon will rise, and I'll turn into a wolf. Gary Busey. I'm a little too old to be playing the Hardy Boys meet Reverend Werewolf. Christina Ricci. I'd love to have a tame one, but I wouldn't have the heart to cage him. Corey Haynes. I want you to turn this into a silver bullet. Bela Lugosi. You should be careful. A person can get killed that way. Johnny Depp. No, you must believe me. It was a horseman, a dead one. Headless. Peter Cushing. Have you heard of the cult of the undead? Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Do you know what could happen if I meet Dracula in the woods? I'll bite. Oh no, you gotta stand in line. Plus four monstrous battles with your favorite comic book heroes. I sense you're trying to resist this evil, Batman. Open your mind so I can help you. Destroy me, Jean. Booster Gold, Vampire Slayer. This September and October, come back to the Fire and Water Network and the home of horror and heroes. I believe you're in the house of Dracula right now. No, wrong address. Come back to the house of Frankenstein. Back. Back. Yes, master. Give me some Dracula. <laughs> So, last episode, we talked about Star Scouts, and uh, we had two comments on the Fire and Water Podcast network page, fireandwaterpodcast.com. That is the best place to leave your comments. Um, If you leave them anywhere else, if you leave them on the Facebook or on Twitter, it's appreciated, but I might not remember to dig them up. I'm sorry. I'm just being honest. First one we have is from Ted Kilvington. 
He said, the mention of avian aliens with non-traditional gender roles reminds me of the Yaz, an androgynous creature from another planet with a humanoid body, but the head shaped, but a head shaped like a pterodactyl. It only appeared in a few issues of Justice League America during the mid nineties. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think I knew them. So, and actually, Ted also provided a link to uh, to DC's page. Uh-huh. See if we can. Okay. Yeah, we got. There it is. Oh, that's kind of cool. Huh. Let <laughs> That is... Boy, that's an interesting sentiment. So the, the picture that's on the link he provided is one of these things. It's like it's clawing its way through a, cl- a crowd and he's going, Let me through! I'm a reptile! <laughs> okay. I mean, whatever works for you, dude. Um, so thanks for sharing that one, Ted. That was an interesting tidbit. Mm-hmm. And of course, we also heard from... Tim Price. Hi, Tim. Uh, he said, Nathaniel, Liz, what's up? I haven't seen this book, but dang, that is some cute artwork. I think it would be a hit with my kids. Delightful. I don't have much to add, except that the Mabel character reminds me of another Mabel from Disney's Gravity Falls. Replace the jet... Oh, Mabel. <laughs> Replace the jetpack with a grappling hook. Done. Could this be a trend of a whole generation of kick-butt Mabels? We can only hope. All the best punchers bring on death. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I have not seen much of Gravity Falls, but I do enjoy what little I've seen, and especially Mabel. Um, And uh, one of my best friends really, really loves Mabel. (laughs) I I was going to say that's that's one of Karen's special joys, isn't it? Yes. She'll (laughs) kind of squeal a little bit over Mabel, so... And and I have to confess to not having seen the show at all. It and it's been recommended to me, as have a ton of other things that I'm sure if and when I ever get around to them I'll like them. But it's just it's on the pile. It's fun. I I keep meaning to actually watch more of it, but then again forget to when life gets in the way. But yes. So random detail that I only just realized. What? This is our twenty fourth episode, which makes this our two year anniversary. Woo! Podiversary! <laughs> Whatever that means! I, I don't know. I've heard it somewhere. But yeah, so we've been doing this thing for two years now. Steadily. Monthly. Haven't missed an episode. I know. I'm kind of proud of us. Especially since we've had some really busy, crazy months in there. So A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. It's being one of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and here's to however many more years we get of it's because I really I enjoy doing this and I like hearing from people and I like reading these things with you. I know I do too. Happy anniversary! Aww, <laughs> you, Aww. you too. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. Um, do we know what we're doing next time? I think we're still figuring that out. So we <laughs> yes, that's right. We are because it was going it was going to be Battle Angel Alita because the movie's coming out in December, but it got bumped back a few months. So that opened it up. So we actually don't know what we're doing next month. Yeah, we better figure that out. Yeah, we should. We should. Right. We'll figure. You'll you'll know when the episode comes up. Because we <laughs> don't know. Surprise. Ta-da. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Tough Like a Girl is a Council of Geeks production and a presentation of the Fire and Water 
Podcast Network. Feedback can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on the Facebook page for Fire and Water Podcast and Council of Geeks. Our logo art was created by Nick Buxom, and our theme music is composed and performed by Erica Dreisbach, whose other works can be found at ericaricardo.com. Bye.